You're listening to Ben and Bikes with your host, Ben Lockett. This podcast is about bikes, but more about the people who ride them and their stories, and less about frame size, shock technology, or even the Tour de France. This is Ben and Bikes, where every bike tells a story. This episode of the Ben and Bikes podcast is brought to you by Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Let's face it, chaps, after a long day in the saddle, we stink. Now you can upgrade your shower game with Dr. Squatch Natural Soap. You want to smell like the forest? There's pine tar. You want to smell like the sea? There's nautical sage. And if you want to smell like you just got off a boat in the Caribbean, there's bay rum. Visit drsquatch.com. That's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H dot com for more detail. And now to this week's episode of Ben and Bikes. There are two sides to every story. In the last episode of Ben and Bikes, I spoke with Ian Dilley about what happened at the 2001 Criterion Under-23 National Championships in Florida and the subsequent article he wrote for this month's edition of Bicycling Magazine titled The Deal. Long story short, with a few laps to go on a grueling circuit, the race was between Ian Dilley and Mike Friedman, today's guest. Ian, who had been in the lead for a while, Mike, who had just caught up to him. Ian's recollection is that Mike said to him, I won't sprint, you can win. As they closed in on the finish line, the opposite happened. Mike did sprint and he did win. Today, my conversation is with Mike to get his side of the story both of the race itself and some thoughts now that he has read the article that Ian wrote. Mike Friedman, welcome to the Ben and Bikes podcast, and thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome, man. It's nice to be here. How's it going? It's going going great. Um, How is is the great and fine city of Boulder this morning? I haven't been down into town. Uh, It's peaceful. You know, we're in a shady area here and the sun's out and the mountains are visible and the dog is here. And so it's peaceful. I think think Boulder is always peaceful, isn't it? I don't know. Boulder is a very interesting town. I mean, there's a wide range of people here. So you definitely get uh, (laughs) you have the peace, you have the chaos, you have it's a very interesting town. It is a very interesting town. The best way to describe uh, describe that. So, um, at the outset, um, Mike, I, I want to thank you very much for being on, on this podcast, um, especially so soon after I spoke with Ian and, and the article came out, but, um, but maybe I could just ask you at the outset, is this a, is this a difficult conversation for you? No, not at all. And I think it's actually very pertinent to not only the article, but also to, to Ian as well. And, and, and I think it's a real, uh, I mean, how many articles come out, and maybe I'm wrong in this, that come out where you can actually have the podcast where you talk to both people uh, of that story and what it means. Um, but no, it's not a difficult thing to do at all. I'm actually looking forward to it. Good. Excellent. Um, so let, let's start off at the outset. Uh, who Who is uh, Mike Friedman? That's a very uh, tough it's a- question to answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the allotted uh, time. <laughs> Was that in the allotted time? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm. I mean, from a cycling background, I, I raced bicycles since I was 11 years old. Um, I pursued a professional career. Uh, I went to the Olympics in 2008. Uh, retired at 32. So I raced a bicycle for for 20 years. Um, not only as a career, but as a lifestyle, as 
as a hobby, as something that I passionately put my heart into for, for, um, for a lifetime. I mean, 20 years is a lifetime. I mean, 10 years is a long time. 20 years is double that. So, right. uh, give me, I can do math, but, um, you know, uh, when I retired, I, I started a nonprofit called peddling minds. Um, I'm an artist. I do art too on the side. Um, I am, I don't know. I guess to describe myself, I do a lot of different things that, that, uh, make me happy. And, um, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an American guy. <laughs> there you go. I, I did read when doing a little bit of research for the podcast, and I'm, I'm quoting directly here. I think it was from the U.S. Olympic website. After complaining of heart attack-like symptoms in late 2006, Mike was diagnosed with a life-threatening pulmonary embolism that resulted in a severely damaged right lung. That must have been frightening. Uh, well, the result of that, that probably most people don't know about it is it was because of a saddle sore that I had removed. I had a saddle sore that was so, I mean, it's a, it's a problematic thing in cycling when you're engaged on the saddle for hours and hours and hours and the interaction between the chamois and the skin and the saddle is repetitive. You get these, these saddle sores. And I had one that was just, had been prolonged there for five years and it was affecting how I was riding. And so when I had that removed, yeah, it became this, this, this thing where I had no idea that I had this genetic predisposition for, for blood clots and was told that I could drive across the country was off season. And long story short, I ended up throwing a, a clot in my leg that moved in my lung, uh, about a month and a half later huh. after I'd been training. And the thing is, when you have a saddle sore surgery and you're trying to do base training, the only way to do that is to remove your saddle and, and ride 75 miles to hundred miles standing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't imagine what that's like. It doesn't start off at 75 miles. You work your way up to it. But, I mean, um, it's an interesting form of training. I'll say, uh, you know, there's a long list of, of ways that you professional cyclists suffer. I'm going to add that to the list of things. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of them for sure. But you know what? The thing about that that situation is later on, a couple years later, I ended up saving my, my good friend Tom Zerbel's life. Um, knowing the symptoms that I had. And I've talked to a lot of other athletes that have had um, similar issues, blood huh. clots and, and – um, uh, guys like, you know, Joe Dombrowski. So uh, you, you go by the nickname of Meatball as well, from what I've read. I hope that's not uh, in any way offensive to you. Uh, uh, not at all. Uh, you know, <laughs> why, yeah. why do people call you Meatball? Because I don't have the prototypical body type for cycling, but I don't think that there is a prototypical body type for cycling. I think anybody yep. who works hard enough can can achieve anything. But, um, yeah, I've been – I'm more of a muscular, rounder, shorter guy. I mean, five ten is not that short, but you know, I just on a bicycle compared to everyone else that was racing. I was always much more muscular, so I looked like a round ball of meat. And for whatever reason, the nickname Meatball was coined. That's good, um, and I and I certainly don't want to gloss over the uh, the Olympic uh, side of things. So I think you raced in Beijing. That's right, um, and, yeah. and that is actually mentioned uh, in, in the article. Um, mm. what, what was that experience like? It's a dream that came true, man. I mean, for 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 as long as I can remember, I wanted to be an Olympian, and I think um, it took me took me almost twenty years to get there. I mean, by the time I had that dream to the time that I got on the start line, it was not a perfect linear course to get there. It was a lot of ups and downs, and and um, I mean, to get there and to race, you know, for the USA at the Olympics was nothing less than a dream come true. Um, and again, that's a story into itself, but, um, to be an Olympian is something that uh, I'm very, very proud of. 
Yeah, very very proud of that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure, and, and I I, th- I hope I'm right in saying this that you have uh, the Olympic roundels tattooed on your wrist or your arm or somewhere like that. Yeah, my radial artery. Um, it's a reminder that that no matter what, you know, if you keep the focus, that dreams do in fact happen. And I think keeping that focus for so long, it wasn't about. It's, the tattoos are not there necessarily to brand myself as an Olympian. To right. me, they mean something totally different than what they mean to someone else. But yep. um, reminder that it's true that it actually happened. Yeah. And it's just funny that I have to have that reminder, and um, I don't see it, you know, that often. It's just part of me now. But yeah, it happened is something I have to remind myself of. Totally. Yeah. A number of my friends are, are Iron Men, both men and women. I might point out, um, and. Um, a lot of them have the uh, the Iron Man tat, and it, and I've often asked them why they got it, and it's all about them, not about showing off that they made it to Iron Man. It's the amount of work that they put in to actually get there. Yeah, I think you forget how much work it takes. I think you know you look back on it, and it seems like a swan song in a way. You know that it that it happened, but the years of toil and frustration and overcoming, you know that, and then victories and all the stuff that goes along with it to get to that process that the tumultuous road that it is 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 yeah i mean it's a testament it's right. a badge of honor right yeah exactly it would be great to talk to you uh about uh, peddling minds can you can you tell us more about that amazing charity that that you're responsible for uh yeah sure man thanks um uh basically we teach kids how to ride bicycles in control so ben i'll ask you a question what keeps you safer wearing a seatbelt while you're driving or having control of your vehicle i would probably say having control of my vehicle yeah, right. And I would agree with you. And helmet safety is very, very, very important. But creating control is what prevents the accidents. Wearing a properly fitted helmet and wearing and being able to ride in two wheels doesn't give you control. So what prevents accidents and what keeps someone ultimately safe is having good control of your bicycle. And so, you know, I think for me, um, when I retired, I didn't really know what I was going to do because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a plan. And so, uh, in the article, Ian. Uh, graciously mentions why I started pedaling mines and it had to do with one kid that was being bullied in school and the bicycle being the great equalizer and how much it changed my life. I am um, figuring out, a, figuring out a way to teach others is really, really important. Um, was important to me. And I, I found a way to, to do that through the bicycle by teaching people how to ride a bicycle. And, um, the other side of it is, is teaching STEM. So science, technology, engineering, and math and, and connecting the world around us, through the practicality and simplicity of a bicycle. So, I mean, that's an endless thing. You have physics and chemistry and math and energy conservation, water conservation, and and a plethora of other things that you can talk about. But I think exposing these kids to um, relatively complex, at times, scientific concepts, even at five years old, whether they're ready for it or not, is an exposure that they tend to understand right away. And it's very interesting. And connecting that to a bicycle, they look at a bicycle as now, not just a form of recreation, but also a form of education, and it makes it much more interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of what it is. <laughs> what uh, What ages of kids are you teaching? Uh, five to ten uh, are the ages, and and I think I should also mention that you know, riding a bicycle is the stuff that I see in class, and you, you see the changes pretty quickly uh, in terms of what they can do on a bike. But it's the emotional growth that I think is the most powerful thing that I see um, in terms of the self-belief, the courage, the perseverance, the persistence, the getting back up when you fall down. The, the deter- like it's just it's a very powerful thing. I, I think the one thing that stands out the most is when I look in their eyes and I can tell they've been working so hard, and this is like on day three or four, 
and the tears are welling up because they're they're trying so hard to do something I'm asking them to do and they're not getting it and then there's this this fear and they overcome this fear and it's just it's an insane experience man I mean it's by far the most fulfilling thing I've ever done to have oh, that impact on someone's life I'm I'm, I'm quite sure um, listeners to this podcast uh, and you'll know this as well Mike uh, will know my involvement with the National Interscholastic Cycling Association and its Colorado chapter. So we take the kids that you guys have done an amazing job at getting them started on bikes and then get them racing on bikes. So uh, we, yeah, we, so we imagine if we could use those kids yeah. and have them help teach others. Right? Uh, totally right. Absolutely. Yep. Love it. It's all, it's all good. All good. <laughs> yeah. So um, a an editorial note here based on a conversation uh, that Mike and I had recently, which is the fact that I have totally biffed my uh, uh, my knowledge of a lot of what we're talking about here today, specifically that when I was talking to Ian uh, and in my introduction to this podcast, I mentioned that we were talking about the 2001 Criterium National Championships in Florida. And uh, as Mike correctly points out, it was actually the 2001 Road Race national championships doesn't change the story that much but let's uh let's make this as accurate as we possibly can so thank you for putting that out um yeah, mike it's okay all right so uh now that we uh we've put that one behind us uh what if you can think back to 2001 um um 17 years ago um what were you doing up to that point what, what had you been doing uh before before that race that year you know, that year, uh, I don't remember that. I mean, I'd spent my entire summer, I'd spent four years prior to this at a summer camp raising bicycles. We spent, um, you know, the months of uh, June, July, and even into August um, at a place called Mike Frazier's, Mike Frazier's Sports Resort in Glenspey, New York. And it was an amazing cycling camp. Um, and with guys my own age, and we would spend the weekends and even the midweek racing repeatedly on the track and on the road and criteriums and road races and, um, um, that was my life, man. I mean, I, I, in high school, I was missing up to 80 days a year, um, focused on, on riding my bike and racing. And, and this was at a time when, you know, the internet was not the internet that it is today. And this is at a time when publications like Vellum News were still paper publications. I mean, they still have that, but it's different now. Um, and you know, I was, I was in high school, man. I was just, I was 18 years old, 17 years old. Um, getting ready to graduate high school and um, the bicycle was my life that was all I did that's all I did um, ably supported by your old man if I remember the article correctly um, yeah well I mean it's it's a community of people that come together to help make that happen I think you know I grew up in a family with with two other brothers uh, my mom was going back to school to become a teacher my my dad was working we were effectively a single income family and and, um, you know, cycling is not a cheap sport to be in. It involves a lot of equipment that's costly. It involves a lot of travel. It involves um, a, n a number of different things that, that make it a difficult sport to get into, especially at a young age. And the thing about that, that lifestyle of my dad, and this is in the article, and I think it's a great story, really, is that my dad had a CDL license. So we were able to take and commandeer a, pick, uh, a semi-truck and drive to all these races on the dime of the company, you know, because we were still doing company work. But, I mean, that experience traveling to New Hampshire and Maine and New York and, and, and Maryland and Virginia, 
we would have sold one by the, you know, by our car too, but as many times as we could, we used the truck and it was a sensational experience and timeline and time frame and memory that I had with my dad. I can't imagine uh, the relationship that you must have had spending so much time on the road with him and at, and at races. It must have been quite something to have him alongside. You know, it's funny. I used to, I used to get embarrassed that he was there. I used to think that he was bad luck because I would perform poorly with him watching and I used to tell him that and, you know. <laughs> I think at a certain point you don't realize the value of what that is until you get to a certain age of maturity to, to yeah. reflect upon that and think, wow, what, you know, like, you know, and it was, it's just the way it was, you know, at a certain point you, you, you come out of that. But as a young kid growing up, you don't want your parents around all the time when you're hanging out with your kids and trying to be cool. Yeah. You know, things haven't changed. My, uh, my son uh, races mountain bikes on the enduro circuit uh, and uh, we're not allowed to cheer for him until he's passed us. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. I would change that mindset. If I could go back, I would change that because uh, when he was dying, I mean, it's a timeline. And, and I spent my entire professional career on the road racing. There was always a flight to catch, always a, a race to get to. So the entire timeline from the age of like 18 or 20 or so until I was 32, I mean, there's not much time that I had in person with my dad. It was always over the phone. And in a way, I really regret that because yeah. – now that's gone. Yeah, completely. Every day, two dozen People for Bike staffers go to work at our Colorado headquarters, in the field, and in Washington, D.C. Our team focuses on making every bike ride safer, easier to access, and more fun. One way we do this is by monitoring all 50 state legislators for bills related to bike riding and taking action to push them through or defeat them. Often what we find surprises us. Today's installment of surprising bike legislation comes from the federal level and could affect retailers, suppliers, and bike purchasers nationwide. In June, the Trump administration released a list of products imported from China under consideration for a 25% tariff increase. E-bikes are included on this list, as most e-bikes sold in the U.S. are manufactured in China. Tariffs are generally imposed to encourage and protect domestic manufacturing and to punish intellectual property theft. But for e-bikes, there's very little of either. If imposed, a 25% tariff increase would lead to higher retail prices for e-bike purchasers and may push many of these potential purchasers out of the market. From entry-level e-bikes to high-end models, price increases could range from a few hundred dollars up to several thousand. Last week, the administration announced an additional proposal that would increase the tariff on nearly every other bicycle, component, and accessory imported from China by 10%. This means the price of most of your favorite bike items will go up significantly. People for Bikes and its allies in the bicycle industry will voice opposition to the increased tariffs, letting the United States Trade Representative know how bike businesses and bike riders will be adversely affected. To learn how you can express opposition to tariff increases and to keep track of bills that affect bike riding in your hometown, join People for Bikes at peopleforbikes.org. It's free and helps make bike riding better for everyone. So what level of um, what level of racing were you at? Were you racing pro at that point? Yeah, I was, you know, again, the, the, the Internet was not what it is today. And so a lot of the stuff that you, you found, you find by in terms of results, you'd go to the back of Bell News and you'd see who was doing what. So and this is still at a time when it was still very East Coast versus West Coast. It, this existed. Like it was on the West Coast, you had guys like Rasan Bahadi, Nathan Trado, um, uh, Sterling Magnell, and then on the, in the East Coast, you had guys like Dustin Rodemaker and Jonathan Retzik, and and uh, there was it's just this dynamic of, of racing. You had the Midwest and, and Texas area, and 
And so at that level, when I was racing at that time period, I was definitely racing pro races. I was racing Clarendon Cup and Capital Cup and Somerville and in breakaways with guys like George Hincapie, Tim Johnson, Eric Woolberg. These were big names, and I was just a kid. Yeah. And to be able to compete at that level was, um, I mean, the racing on the East Coast was very, was very strong and still is very strong. Yeah. So definitely, um, I definitely had my fair share of exposure by the time I was, I was, you know, I, I had done hundreds, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of races. I mean, you know, depending on the number on many, many, many times. And yeah. I, you, know, you don't get to a professional level without doing that. So what was the, uh, was that 2001 road race? to be clear. Uh, was that what, what you were aiming for that year? Was that the pinnacle of the racing calendar that year, or was it just another race on the calendar? Uh, a combination of, well, really just another race, to be honest. I mean, I think that year was the very first year they were hosting an under-23 national title. I don't think that race had existed before. And, and um, so the lead-up to that race, I was riding very terribly. I was not, you know, I, I trained very hard, but I was burnt out. I had overtrained. I was in a hole. And it's funny. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Um, you know, we went to the Tour of Elgin, and this is where I first saw Ian racing. Um, and this is where I first learned of who he was. Because he was in a breakaway with the guy, Danny Pate. And, um, Danny Pate, as a name, oh, a famous yeah, name. Yeah, yeah a very good friend of mine. And yeah. um, I just texted him to clarify, you know, what that was like. And um, anyways, the, uh, I had just kind of come into the fruition in love with coffee and, and had a whole bunch of coffee kind of out of nerves and raced terribly there. I ended up dropping out in the, like the second lap because I couldn't breathe. I couldn't bring my heart rate back down. And, and long story short, I was really depressed about it mentally, not thinking. And, and I had just let go of training, let go of, of trying to get ready for the nationals. And I figured, well, whatever happens, happens, you know, and, um, and then I just started having fun. You know, I just ate whatever I wanted to eat and, and just let the mentality stress of it all just go away and just be a kid for a little while. And that made all the difference. That made all the difference in terms of recovery, sleep. Even at that age, you have all this pressure on you. Um, and so going down to the Nationals, I didn't really have – I knew it was going to be interesting. And, and, and like the article says, I went down. Um, my friends had this hyper, hyper uh, hypoxic um, machine that we would – do training sessions on, and this was this was cutting edge technology. It's yeah. still cutting edge, uh, cutting edge technology, um, where we would do these mass breathing exercises, half an hour, five minutes on, five minutes off, at like seventeen thousand feet. You know, we were doing this on the way down to the race, and we were doing this for months leading up to it. But uh, getting on the start line, you know, I knew that there was always a shot. It's a bike race. There's always a shot, but I had no idea that it was going to feel as good as I did at that race. I mean, it was. I had unbelievable legs that weekend. Everything came together. And so, you don't know you're going to have legs like that until you start racing. You so, could be on the start line and you feel total, like total crap. And the next thing you know, you have everything is clicking, right? And those races are very special because they don't come very often. So uh, in the interview that I had with Ian, uh, his take was that the race in Florida, that was the first time that he had met you. Um, I, I think that's still accurate. What you're saying is you just saw him race in a, in a previous race. Right. Yeah. I saw him racing. I was on the sideline disgruntled and, you know, just sitting there watching this race go by and, and being very impressed with, with, um, you know, one, he's up there with, with Danny Pate, who's, I think was riding for Sago or I don't remember who he was riding for at the time, but I didn't know Danny at the time. And, you know, you just, you see these guys and, and guys like Danny Pate and Mike Creed were, were, they were the icons of the junior racing scene. I mean, they were Colorado boys. They had all the, press they had you know they were freaks on the bike and still are yeah 
And to see Ian going toe for toe with this guy and t- relatively unknown, I didn't know who Ian was, you know, and, and then immediately knowing that this guy is someone that you have to watch for. And when Ian went up the road in the road race, I knew that was a guy to follow, right? I knew he had an engine. So, I mean, I, I knew who it was when he went. That's interesting. Um, again, now, so we're into the areas where, you know, uh, uh, Ian's recollection of the race is slight, slightly different than yours in the fact that he had no idea who you were at that point. Uh, and the first thing he knows about you uh, um, in the race is when you're when he's sort of broken away from the pack on an attack, which is probably like the third or fourth time he had done that and got, got on a breakaway uh, and on, only to find you but you behind him. So... Um, go ahead, sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, go, go ahead, Mike. Mm. It's interesting when we, when we met and, and talked and spoke about our memories and how different, even though you're in the exact same race in the exact same time moment, how different your your memories can be and and the thing for sure and 100 for sure is we were off the front for a lot of laps it yep. was at least laps and and the reason i know this is a couple different things one i called the people that were feeding me the guys that took me down there and asked how many laps were off the front and you know how many times did you have to come through for through a feed zone and i remember having like knowing that i had to eat because we were going to be off the front for a long time um, and it was lap after lap, every lap taking a bar and taking a bottle. It didn't matter how short the laps were. It didn't matter how hungry I wasn't or how hungry or thirsty I wasn't. I was taking a bottle and drinking it and taking food and eating it. Right. Um, and, you know, Ian's recollection of the race, how it formed and how the breakaways formed is very accurate. Um, and again, this is his memory versus my memory. But I, it's, it's fascinating to think that, like, as, as, as present as you are in a moment of a bike race, and even though it's 17 years ago, the memories that you have are still very vivid, but also just a little bit different, right? So I think in a bike race, you're focused on so many different factors. You're not focused on remembering how many laps you were up the front. You're focused on, you know, the feeling, the, 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 um, the tactics, you know, what's going on. So it's interesting to, you know, to hear the differences. But, you know, we were off the front for a long time, and we were both very, very strong riders. I would say out of the two of us, I think we had two of the best legs in the race that day. Otherwise, we would have been caught earlier on, right? right? I mean, it's just the matter of the fact. Like, we were able to do things that other guys weren't able to do that day, and we just happened to be in the breakaway together. Well, he had attacked first, and I had gone across to him. So at, at what lap do you think that you... So did, let me get this, the sequence of events correct. Ian broke away, and then you caught up with him, or you and Ian broke away? Uh. There were a number of attacks, and Ian was definitely more aggressive than anyone else. And at some point, Ian went solo and had a, almost a 45-second gap. And yeah. the, the group that I was with wasn't doing anything. He had two or three teammates in there. They had stacked the breakaway. Um, they were a very strong team. Um, and it, you could just tell that, that they were content with just sitting on and not you know, letting the break fizzle, like letting Ian go. So that was the move to go with because these guys are going to sit on this move. And so if you don't – if you're going to sit there, you're not really part of the race. You're just going to be flowing around and towing these guys around. So why not jump across? And that was when I realized I had amazing legs because I went across at 39 miles an hour for a 45 second gap. And I was there within like a very quick amount of time. And, and the only reason I know this is because I looked down at my speedometer and I was surprised at how fast I was going and how much it didn't feel. <laughs> and that was the, that was the moment that I knew that I was on good form. Uh, so, then, uh, so again, uh, let's just address this because this is another central theme to to Ian's uh, Ian's take on things. And in Ian, I, I know you're listening. You will have listened to this. I just want to be clear. Uh, I'm just trying to get you know two sides to the story here, and I hope that's still okay with you, Mike. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think we, we, I, 
power of the story is that too. Right? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. So Ian's take is that he broke away uh, and he does mention the 45 second gap. Uh, and then he notices that, that someone is behind him and his take on it was that, that you were pretty much spent at that point. Um, your recollection is, it sounds like it's different. Well, go across a 45 second gap by yourself quickly and tell me how you feel when you get to the back wheel. I'd you know, be destroyed. You're, gonna labor, you're gonna look like hell, right? <laughs> That's right. That shows how fast I got there because, you know, like one second he's got a 45 second gap, the next second he looks back and I'm coming, right? Yeah. Um, and, but that was a big effort to take. And, but it was the right move to do too. At the same point in time, you know, from that point forward, uh, a lot changed, you know, lap after lap, we were out there going pole for pole for pole. And then, you know, and, and as we get into the story further, you know, that changes and, and you start to see, and most people who race a bicycle understand the, the physicality of what it is to race a bicycle, but then the mental fortitude that it takes to race a bicycle. And that's where I started to falter. Right. That's really what ultimately failed me was my mental fortitude down the road there. But we'll get to that. Point. Yeah, let, let, let's do that. So um, we'll get on to the, so at w how many laps were, were you into um, before, uh, you know, the, the famous words, which uh, is a recollection of words from 17 years ago. They may not have been said like this, but at some point in the race, uh, you say to, uh, to Ian uh, something along the lines of, I won't sprint, you can win. So what is, what is your recollection of, of that pivotal moment? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something real quick, too, to the effect that, um, you know, I really appreciate listening to Ian speak. Because when I, when I read the article for the first time, I was reading it for the first time, like, just like everyone else was. So I reacted in a way that's still very much part of the healing process, right? I mean, for me to read that article um, and knowing that that's public for the first time ever was the first time that I had to accept this was actually happening and coming out. And I had no idea. Right. And then to hear his voice on the, on the podcast and talk about it and, and then also reiterate repeatedly that this was his version and, and to make sure you get mine was very, um, uh, appealing and, and moving for me to, you know, like realize that this is, this is a really special opportunity. So, right. um, and, and interestingly to that, to that point, I think where his memory really starts to kick in is those last two laps, because that's really when he started to do more work. And so up to this point, like we had been going pole for pole, and at a certain point, Ian started to attack. We only had 12 miles. The laps were only six six miles apiece, right? So yep. two laps to go, 12 miles is not that far to go. Right. And Ian starts to attack and attack and attack, and each time I'd bring him back and bring him back. You know, at a certain point, it's definitely starting to fatigue me for sure, and. And, you know, each time that he would attack, I would just sit on his wheel and we would go from 28 to 30 miles an hour to 12 miles an hour. And the group behind us was getting closer and closer and closer to the point where you could see these guys coming. And we both knew, and I knew especially that, uh, and I'm pretty sure who the breakaway had like Rasan Bahati, um, Pat McCarty, uh, John Retzik, I think was there. Uh, two of those guys, Pat, you're not a very good sprinter. Sorry, buddy. But um, <laughs> Retzik and, and, um, <laughs> And uh, Rasan were very good sprinters, and, and we had been off the front all day. And this is where I started to falter mentally. You know, I, I said, you know, I said, literally, um, you know, I won't sprint. You can have it. And immediately thinking, like, what the hell am I doing? What are you, what are you doing? And then not knowing how to correct it. And that, you know, it goes like that for two laps. But um, how do you take that back? No, I, I'm not going to do that. You know, what do you say in that situation? So, I mean, 
these 12 miles, you know, like thinking like, what have I done? What have I done? You know? And yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting thing to think back on, um, knowing that that was a huge mistake in the moment, but not knowing how to get out of that mistake while I'm still have, like, I'm still racing, I'm still riding, you know, and that Ian's pulling and pulling and pulling, you know, and I would come through, but not the same, you know, and, and it was different. And, and again, we were, we were strong enough and Ian was strong enough that we were pulling away, putting distance into those guys that were chasing us. Right. So we had very strong legs and Ian, especially had very strong legs that day. Right. So, so just, so, to, just to make sure we, we, we summarize this correctly. And I, and I don't think this is any different than you've said to Ian, but you know, you, you did, you know, with two laps to go, say something on the lines of Ian, this is yours. Uh, I'm not going to sprint, have at it. Um, I, ju I just want to make sure that, that 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 is clear. Even even though you know retrospectively, you say I, you know kind of wish you hadn't done that, or you wish you'd compensated for that or said something uh, after it. Um, th that is something that that you said during the race. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I did. I said it. Yeah. Okay. I'm taking a break from the Ben and Bikes podcast to tell you more about Doctor Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Made with natural ingredients from the earth like oils, plants, goat's milk, Greek yogurt, and oatmeal. Turn your post-ride shower game up to 11 and get ready to get out of the shower feeling alive. Ship straight to your door, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. And if you sign up for monthly automatic soap delivery, you'll get free shipping on all orders. Visit drsquatch.com, that's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H.com for more details. And now back to this week's podcast. So um, we're, we're now coming up to, uh, to the end of, of, of the race with, uh, I don't know, half a lap to go, a lap to go. Um, at, at what point did you then say, you know, did your sprinter instincts kick in and, and you take off for the, for the checkered flag? You know, the funny thing, really, I mean, you know, the whole time I was, you know, thinking, you know, I screwed up, I screwed up, and I didn't know how to, to fix it in the moment. Right. Turned the corner, and the, the final corner, you could see the finish line, and it was, it was a reaction. I mean, within the first half of a pedal stroke, uh -huh. and I think we even got side by side. I don't even think we were, we were, um, I don't think I came from behind or anything. I think we were side by side. And, and, and you think about all the people that were there cheering and, and expecting this, this crazy event, you know, to come down to a sprint. And, um, within that first half pedal stroke, I was already sprinting and already ahead of them, you know, like I was already going and, and it was just a reaction. And I, the, the response that I felt immediately, I knew that I had screwed up. I knew that I had done something that I, was immediately not proud of, immediately had regretted, and had happened so fast. And and it is the only time in my entire career that I've ever done anything like that, anything considered that I would consider cheating, and, and I consider this cheating. Yeah. So, so um, before we, we get onto that part, though, uh, Mike, um, Ian, Ian in the story, and, 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 and during the podcast as well, had said that he remembers even you know as we got close to the checkered flag uh validating with you that hey you you remember our our deal right i mean that's the whole element of of his article so do yeah, you what, yeah. what's your recollection of that mate i i don't have a very clear recollection of it i remember him saying something um it was before the turn and and 
already I'd already been in so much emotional turmoil of like everything that I was thinking internally. Um, and then also being tired and that this was going to happen and something was going to happen and, and not knowing how to handle that. Um, it was very, uh, kind of like almost an out of body experience, like looking back on that. But I remember him saying something for sure, Yeah, you know, and, and, and I don't remember what my response was to it. And, and, and interestingly, if you read his description of what my response was, it, it does kind of show like where I was in my own headspace because I didn't even know how to respond. And uh, it's interesting to hear some of his stuff because I mean that that for me at least shows that like that is a true feeling. It's it's putting a picture to a feeling for me. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, you know, it's like it was just it, again it happened within like the last kilometer. It was like the last mile of the race that that they like there's so many things happening at once right and then it's like it was uh yeah i wish i wish that i could have taken that back it would have been but that's you know where we are here today you know that, and that's so, right that, that, that's right and uh and and my my um comment during the my interview with with ian was Look, you're a you're you're 18 at that point. You're a you know a, a red-blooded, highly trained, super fit athlete, uh, and a sprinter nonetheless, with a nose for for the line. Um, at what point do you think just your instincts took over as as that, um, and and everything else sort of disappeared? It, you know, I we've all. Most of us would have been in situations in sporting events where where your mind becomes so laser focused on one specific thing and everything else just becomes nothing. Um, it just it, it becomes the laser focus of your brain. And, and I wonder whether you had got into that laser focused uh, attitude when it comes to crossing the line. You know, looking back now um, with who I am today and, and how I think today, you know, and and even then, you know, right from wrong, you know, it, I knew when I was sprinting, like, I, I mean, that it was wrong. Right. And I, it was like a reaction. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't control it. I was just sprinting. And I mean, that's really what I remember. And then remember, remembering the guilt that I felt afterwards. Huh. And, and I, I, that's, it's a weird thing to look back on and admit because I lied to myself, you know, even about it for so long, um, you know, out of fear, but, um, and, and self, you know, like anger, but, um, you know, I don't know that you can just equate it to simply just having, you know, this, this drive to win. I think that, you know, there was, there was a lot going on and, um, you know, I was a kid. I was looking at a picture of this the other day of what I look like then versus what I look like today. And <laughs> you know, you look at a 21 year old today; they're a kid. You look at an 18 year old; they're even more of a child. You know, and they have no idea what the totally. heck is going on. Yeah, you know? no, and, absolutely. Um, it was it was it was a mistake. You know, and 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 not so much even the whole thing. The 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 self doubt is something that that is very real at that age, and yeah. and and also the not knowing how to handle a situation and control your emotions. And then, you know, just, you know, just going for the, the finish line. I mean, it's, it's such a weird thing to think about because I mean, at 18 years old, you're a different person. I'm not the same person I was three years ago, you know? And, and part of that was my anger in this, in the, in the article a little bit. I mean, you saw what I responded with because I sent it to you. It's 
And, you know, two years ago when we did this interview, I was a different person than I am today. You know, I'm still the same person inherently, but the values and the way I think about things are different. And, and to look back on 17 years, I think we could probably all agree that we were different people, even though we're the same people. Yeah. Right. So. So you, you've um, Mike, you, you've you've crossed the line um, and that that normal feeling of elation when you when you've run a, won a race isn't there. You, not at all. Yeah. Not even close, man. I yeah. mean, not even close. Because I already, I knew, I knew inside, very much so, what was going on. Yeah. There's a comment in the article about um, uh, you wanting to relinquish the p- top podium spot. Uh, your coach kind of talking you out of that. Is there any accuracy to that? <sighs> yeah, there is. But it wasn't out of like, it wasn't out of like, screw this guy. This is how it is. It was more like, there was no rule for this. What do we do? And there was panic. There was, it delayed the whole presentation. I wanted to make it right. But then I was, you know, like there was no, there was no policy. We found a loophole in the last mile of the bike race that, that they had never experienced before at a national championship. At least that's how I remember it. And so, you know, like, he's like, this is how bike racing is, you know, like you won the race, you have to stand on top of the podium, you know? And, and I wanted to get the jersey back. I mean, it, it wasn't like it was, you know, I was being led and directed in a variety of different ways that, you know, I, I probably on my own accord, I would have given the jersey back. But then having people, you know, saying like, you know, this is how it is. This is what happened. This this happened. I It's kind of like there is truth to that. But it wasn't, again, out of like a um, screw him. You're the champion. That's not what it was. Yeah. I mean, people knew that this deeply it was affecting how I was responding and, and it was, yeah, it was very strange, man. I mean, there's a, there's a part in the article where it says that I, that I, I wanted to frame the Jersey and, and I didn't, I never did. Um, I was so embarrassed by it. I had to wear the Jersey for the next you know year after that. And I was embarrassed to wear it. In fact, I mean, it affected me so much that I quit the sport, you know, after I read the article from Bell news and, and, and the profound effect on me was, was very different than I had re- thought it was going to be like, um, coming out of that race, you know, and, and again, had I just gotten second, that would have, would not have happened. It would have been a very different atmosphere. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I, when you think back on it, he, he's absolutely right. Neither of us were smiling. We both knew what was going on. And I think in a way, this Jersey is so symbolic in a much more powerful way than just, you know, like the cheating atmosphere. I think, uh, as human beings, I think a lot of people will make mistakes. And then I think looking back on it and being able to come back and say, this was wrong um, for my own personal self without caring what anyone else thinks was very like, I needed to do it because like, it's not who I am. It's not the integrity. It's not how I view myself. It's, there's no honor in it without owning that mistake and, and making it right. And I think the value and the lessons that it not only has taught myself and, and Ian, but who we can help others with maybe, is something that, that I'm very into. I, I really want to see a change, like, in, in, or the, if the story is read by a junior rider or any rider or any person, for that matter, that sees that you can repair and, and take back the errors that you made, you know, from long ago and, and own them and grow from them and, and, and let it go. That's a, that's a, for me, that's what this all is. I mean, well, look, you, empathy, the, I don't want sympathy. It's, it's just, it's no, what it is. But, no, but the, the whole theme of these two podcasts has been two sides to every story. And the fact that I, some, love, that. I, I love that about this. Yeah. Um, and, and more importantly, the fact that we can't change decisions that we have already made, that's physically impossible, but how you react to that, which 
uh, I would applaud both of you uh, for for coming out here after such a long time and having these conversations and these open conversations in a, in a ridiculously public forum, um, both in, a, in, in a magazine article and on a podcast, literally, well, you know, I'll say heard around the world, but that would be making too much of my podcast. But, but it's there for it's there for anyone to listen to, and uh, I, I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage. Um, I think it takes a, a tremendous amount of self belief, uh, and um, you know, I'd I'd I'd, I'd applaud it, mate. I, I think it's fantastic. Well, thanks, man. I mean, it's been an emotional ride. You know, I told one person this, and and and. And eventually told Danny Pate this too because he was in that same bike race. But you know, as as things turn and develop, and you, you come to these realizations that you actually have a voice, you can actually make this right. And I should have done it sooner. I just didn't know how. So that, you know? that's a that's a great point, um, Mike. So what I find one of the things I find most fascinating about about this story is the fact that really, for for all intents and purposes, uh, in two thousand and one during that race. You and Ian had never really met and had had no relationship whatsoever. Um, this life changing event happens during this race, uh, and then for what for again for all intents and purposes for the next fifteen or so years, this experience weighs on both of you massively. And it wasn't until you and Ian decided to get together in Golden uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, when you moved, I think I, I think I'm right in saying back to Boulder or Colorado, uh, that uh, that you that 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 you decided to get together and discuss this weight that had been on your shoulders for the better part of a decade and a half. That, that is incredible to me. Well, I, this was you know we we saw each other for the first time in like 15 years uh, in Golden at the U.S. Pro Challenge that was coming through, and I yep. had just retired. Um, I think I had retired a year prior to that. I was still in my relationship. And, and, you know, I think in the article, it, it goes into a much more personal detail than I thought was going to be in there in terms of, um, you know, what was being shared in the interview. But, you know, that being said, it's, it's in a way it's a good thing because that change was the, the big change, that big push, you know, the stuff that, that was said over a period of years in that relationship made me realize that I was not okay with that anymore. And it was the final push over the top of the climb that I had to really face and really challenge. And, 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 you know, in spite of all the stuff that was going on after that relationship had ended, I knew that I could make that change still. And it opened my mind and my heart to that whole thing uh, and being able to do that. And um, that was the first, that was the first time we interacted and, and, you know, the, the offering of a, of a peace coffee is so powerful, you know, coffee is <laughs> such a, easy thing to do. And, and then, oh, yeah. you know, after processing and going through this stuff, I mean, in the middle of it all, I was actually coming back out to Colorado, um, to help Taylor Finney get ready for the, um, Olympics in Rio. And, and, uh, in Ian's interview, he talks about how we had, um, circles, close circles of friends that inter- interacted with us both. And, and so I, I had, uh, called one of them and, and got Ian's phone number because I didn't actually have Ian's phone number. And, and I just called him on the drive and, and somewhere probably in Indiana or something. And just said, dude, I have to make this right. I want to make it right. You know, I, I, this is what, this is what I did. This is what I remember. And, and, you know, he had written me earlier on in an email when I had my iliac artery, I had, there was this thing called iliac endofibrosis where you have a kinked artery 
and I had to have surgery on this this main artery, and, and it's a really dangerous surgery for me because I have that blood clotting disorder. Yeah. I got this email from him saying like, "Hey man, since you're retiring now, do you think we could ever do that interview to to do this you know this this article?" And I remember being so angry because you know my I was I'm facing this life threatening thing if I do the surgery and then also potential retirement, and then that he would you know would reach out and say that, but. You know, they, the thing that I've come to realize is that he's been going through this, his own version of, like, healing and, and understanding and, and anger and frustration with the whole thing. And up to that point, we had had no interaction, right? Yeah. And then following this interaction, uh, the pro challenge and then making that connection and then making this phone call and and um, being completely open to him writing an article about it, I think, you know, that's the least I could do yeah. um, so in terms of... of so when you when you guys meet in in Golden um, and have this revised bromance that that then that then the bromance then that was I mean, his you know his lip was trembling there because that was the first interaction we had and you know since it happened yes exactly right and you've both been carrying this in separate universes yeah uh, exactly uh, yeah. and and these universes now coincide uh, there must have been so much passion um, on on both sides. In, in that meeting, what what was that what was that like? It was intense. It was intense. First, I was walking onto a bus that of a team that I had been racing with for the last five years, um, with all my friends on there, you know, in an environment that I was familiar with. And then, and then here is Ian, who's in his own environment, doing a whole journalistic story on what's going on and, and a part of this this team. And we have mutual friends on this team, and it's all very present, right there, you know, like in a small space on a team bus within ten feet of each other looking at each other for the first time in over 15 years. It was crazy. crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so I was super nervous and, and, um, and I imagine he felt the same way. And, you know, one of us had to offer an olive branch and that was definitely on my shoulders to do that. Yeah. You know, so, and, and I'm glad that he was there. I'm glad that, that happened. Yeah. The, it, it strikes me that the, um, that the jersey is, is a big part of this story as well, because you, you like you say, you'd stood on the podium with that. You'd, you'd, you'd ridden it, ridden with it, wearing it for a few years after the race um, and, and felt some guilt relating to that. Yeah. Um, and then um, you, you've, you've had this, you know, Ian's take is that, you know, in the back of a drawer, um, which has some symbolism to it um, as far as, you know, the fact that you, you, according to his story, you know, you would put it there because you didn't really want to have exposure to it. Um, hated it. You, you hated it, right? hated that thing. For, for the reasons that we're talking about today or for anything, any other reason? The way it made me feel, for the way, what it stood for, what it, what it didn't stand for, what it made me, like, like what, was, what it was representative of. I hated that thing. So handing it, so handing it to Ian on that day, was that the point that the burden of guilt left you? No, because it's just an object. The apology was 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 more the phone call. I mean, you know, like giving him the jersey is is giving him a symbolic thing of, of winning a bike race, right? But right. it was it was the apology and being able to say, "I'm sorry, dude. Like this was wrong." That so was more. I think my I think my point is that the that the jersey. For most people, is all about the bike race, and, and for and sure, that, and that's that, different for everybody. For me, for me personally, yeah. it was the apology. For him, it was, of course, the jersey. And in fact, I think I still have the medal. I have to give him the medal still. That's back in the drawer somewhere, and I haven't found it yet because I just, I guess, been buried. So right. along with that jersey goes a medal, and that's something else that has to be handed back still. 
Listen, if you guys decide to do that, I would love to be there for that and and take a picture and and be just be part of that interview. And maybe that's the third part here. That would be great. Yeah, I think we could certainly make that happen. It needs to happen because it's a good part of it. Because there's the jersey and then there's the medal, and they represent two different things. Right. So, yeah. and even it's the same thing, but it's it's just a different representation of what it is. So here we are in, in 2018, Mike. Um, the, the jersey has been handed over, the medal uh, to be handed over a certain point. Um, as, as much as possible, it sounds like the relationship uh, between you and Ian is, is healed. Um, and at least, I, at least I hope that's the case. It is, but like when this article came out, I, I freaked out. I was in the middle of summer camps. I had a teacher out here, a student teaching with me. I had, you know, I had kids, I was tired. I wasn't sleeping very well, I was stressed out. And, and I knew that this article was coming out. And in fact, Bill Strickland, the head editor at Bicycling, you know, texted me. He's like, listen, I would never write anything bad about you. And so immediately, like, when it, when you get texted that, and I had asked to read the article, and they wouldn't let me read the article. And, yeah. and I understand why now I do, and I, I respect it, actually. It's kind of funny how that comes full circle. But my reaction to it was still part, very much part of the healing process. Yeah. And I, I said this earlier in the podcast. Like, to read that, knowing that this was going to be public, and that the information out there was very personal, but also very real, was the last part for me to overcome that that burden of, of feeling like a complete cheater on that day, yeah. right? And, and and for the races that I signed, lined up with on with that jersey on. Yeah, well, I, I didn't. There's, yeah, so I mean, it's 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 interesting to read it and, and to read it like everyone else is reading it, but then to be part of that story is was very. Uh, this morning is when I. This morning, Ben is when I getting ready for this podcast is when I read it quietly with coffee and just read it in a peaceful, like without having all this stress and, and, and like being completely okay with it and happy that it, it happened. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I, I think that, that, uh, you know, the fact that you are someone that deals with young athletes in very formative years of their lives, um, as they, you know, when, maybe when they get older and they read about this story, uh, the example that you have set about someone that made a mistake but you know owned up for it and did everything they could in order to alleviate that um, is, a, is a tremendous example. So I think you should be very proud. Well, I mean, I, it, it's, yeah, again, it, you know, I have to admit that that actually did have part of it because that peddling minds, working with these kids and, and, and preaching to them about integrity and, and trust and believing in yourself or all these things that like I'm talking about, but then I don't feel that way internally. And, and so that definitely helped refine what I knew I had to do. Wait, you, you don't feel that internally or you didn't? No, I do or you... now. I do. Okay. And, I, and I did then. I believe that about me, myself then, but knowing that this, this one thing was held over my head and that we would continue to be there if I couldn't let it go yeah. and, and, and make things right. You know, and I had no idea how Ian was going to respond. I had no idea how it was going to go, but I knew that I had to make that happen. And, it, you know, I didn't know how to do that before because I was afraid, man. I was afraid that, you know, I, I would have been ridiculed. You have to understand, 18 years old, when that article came out in Bell News, yeah. called and it was it was in the publication. It was in a paper publication, um, much like Bicycling is here, you know, and that's why they couldn't find it online because it was in the, I, I, you know, I don't know how they had to do the archives there, but it was definitely in print. Right. And with that image and, and how I felt at 18, it was, it was, it was life changing, man. Yeah. You it know, you, are you aware that that picture is on my website? Saw it. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. 
uh, it, it's uh, quite a telling photograph. As grainy as it is, uh, it's quite a telling, telling photograph. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It really. So, I, and to admit that today, after you know, like it, that, I'm able, and it's really in the last two weeks that I've processed this. And, and, and Bill and Ian both said, like, look, process it, let it, let it sit, see yeah. how it feels. Yeah. And I honestly had not read the article fully because I skimmed it. Was angry reading the stuff that was about me and and how how immature almost is that you know to and then to look back and say you know what this is actually a really this is really really well done yeah you know well, well yeah. as, as much as the article and as much as this conversation might can be part of that healing process for for both you and for Ian uh, I I hope that 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 this has achieved something. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I, I uh, or during or at some point in this podcast interview, um, I, uh, I applaud your bravery um, for doing this. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the word a moment ago as far as integrity is concerned. Clearly a massive part of sport, uh, and certainly for youth sports, um, it's, it's a huge part of it. So I, I totally uh, agree that um, this has been part of, of helping kids understand that integrity nature. Um, I... I, I, you know, I think if you want to look at integrity, let's let's talk about loss for a second. Because, I mean, in order to be a champion, in order to, to learn how to win, you've got to lose. You got to appreciate losing because losing is the only way you're going to learn what you need to do differently in order to win. Yep. yep. And and for me, that developed over years of, of going through this and thinking about it and knowing and then lying to myself and lying to others about it, and that just self propagates over and over and over. And so to be able to relive this and, and, and to own it and accept it and to admit it yeah, in a very growing period for me. Totally. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Mike, for being on the Ben and Bikes podcast. I, I really appreciate, appreciate all your time. I think it's a, it's a glorious thing that you, both you and Ian are doing. Um, and, uh, I wish you and Pedaling Minds the greatest of success. And at some point, um, we are literally only 50 miles apart, so maybe we can, go for a ride, although I know you will kick my ass, but there we go. I've been running more than riding, so, um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to voice on audio. I think audio is such an important and powerful tool in addition to the article. Right. It speaks volumes to be able to hear someone's voice and um, interjections and tone and um, versus just reading it. It's like why texts don't always read the same way as when you're talking in person. Absolutely. And, I think that, um, you know, I, for me, hearing Ian's podcast was very powerful um, because of that reason. Right. And then also that he had received the text and didn't just write them off. He, he actually thought about what I had written because I wrote, you know, like, how could you write this? What did, like, what are you, where are you going with it? What, what is the point? You know, who cares about the personal stuff? Let's talk about the why or whatever. But it's all connected. Yeah. And, and so to be able to, to sit here and, and, to share with everyone else who happens to listen to read the article. It's, it's a very powerful thing. Well, good stuff. Um, Mike Friedman, thank you so much for being on the Ben and Bikes podcast. It's been a pleasure, man. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Ben and Bikes podcast. You'll find this and many other episodes about athletes, authors, filmmakers, and community organizers, all with a story to tell about bikes by visiting benandbikes.com. Thank you for listening. We'd sure appreciate it if you could rate and review the Ben and Bikes podcast wherever you listen. 
We appreciate your support, and thanks for helping us connect with other bike enthusiasts. If you have a bike story to tell, email us, ben at benandbikes.com.